Hey, what's up, Sir Mindsets? I'm out here in sunny Los Angeles, and excuse the mess, but uh, I'm in a dope room right across uh, Crypto.com Arena in downtown. And uh, yeah, you know, I got a lot of exciting news to share. Um, the deal that I'm working with with the publisher that is going to publish my book is um, underway, and uh, we signed it, and you know, things are coming together, and that's like a really big real big deal i mean it's been a dream of mine to publish a book and um you know it's so hard to publish a book but uh yeah more to come on that and i'm excited to share it with you guys have you guys read it and you know hopefully you guys uh take a lot away from it and uh i'm just gonna leave it at that but um yeah the book is called start mindsets and uh some of the podcasts it's got a lot of the lessons and learnings that we've learned from entrepreneurs and um people who have gone through really difficult challenges in business and personal life as well and uh it's all in there so uh yeah it's it's been uh four years we're working we've been working on that and we're excited to finally put it together um the next thing i was going to talk about was uh, i wanted to shout out francis Simowitz and the um <clears throat> and the and her company weave acceleration they had me out here in la and uh they uh, helped me, well, they paid me to do a speaking gig about uh, startup fundraising. And uh, it's also been a dream of mine to land one of those things, too. And, uh, yeah, it's it's been great. Um, and uh, it just feels good to be in L.A., you know. L.A.'s got a sunshine in December. And, um, you know, it's something about the sun that just gives me, I don't want to say power, but, you know, it gives me that, that energy that I need to... Uh, be my best maybe um but yeah check out the podcast the last one we did was with james wang of uh creative ventures he's a gp there um and we talked a lot about deep tech um and you know the investing landscape and how he views deals as a vc and it's uh as an early stage vc um and uh yeah we talked a lot about a lot uh, i mean sorry <laughs> yeah we talked a lot but uh, we spoke about um uh something that i found interesting was you know, the sense of urgency that is in, is, is in an entrepreneurial environment compared to a corporate one. Uh, he worked at Google X and, you know, he was just comparing and contrasting some of the things that he knows as a uh, <clears throat> having worked at a large conglomerate like Google versus, you know, the startup life that he sees on a daily basis as an entrepreneur. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, been doing a lot of work, just came back to the country three days ago and uh, going on another trip pretty soon, but um, we're looking to close out this year pretty strong. And, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for the undying support. The Spotify rap that we had had um, about 70 people say that we were the top 10 podcast and uh, five people say that they were the top 50 for the, or no, like, yeah, 50 people said that we were in the top 5% of their podcast, maybe something like that. And like 20, uh, 20 or so were, number one fans and that's just Spotify. So if you listen to us on Apple, um, big shout out to you too. Um, we just don't get those stats, but uh, yeah. And if you're uh, an advertiser or a startup looking to grow your brand, we want to help you do that too. So we have a couple of sponsorship tiers available as well. And um, <clears throat> yeah, looking looking forward to making a lot of more great content here. Um, and it's just a start of it, you know. We, uh, we got a long way to go, but uh,
up so our mindsets back again with a cool podcast today's november 16th but depends on what time zone you're in um and uh yeah today we got a great guest on the show james wang is the general partner of a fund called creative ventures also has rich history and uh i think just doing really high level stuff you know like coming from uh bridgewater associates which earl used to work at as well as you know just right now really investing in high tech and, and deep tech uh in an ever-changing um i guess you could call that not just a venture landscape but like a ever the ever-changing you know world that we live in um but yeah james would love to get to know you more from like how you would describe yourself i know there's many ways you could take that but um i guess when it comes to being a vc and uh you know an investor most of the time like how do you describe the fund and your uh, role at the at the um at the firm? Yeah, sure, happy to, uh, and thanks for having me on here. Uh, in terms of the way I probably describe the fund, early stage deep tech fund, like you were saying, a uh, big part of that is investing in a lot of different technologies. That uh, funny when you mention the Bridgewater Associates thing, uh, actually have a lot of big macro impacts. So the big areas of focus for us are actually aging population demographics, which leads to labor shortages uh, around the world, uh, just because to oversimplify too many old people relative to young people, so less manual labor, uh, but also uh, rising healthcare costs, basically for the same reason, just in terms of percentage of the economy. So lots of interesting new technologies to attack that, as well as climate change. And usually the stuff that we find applies to those, even though we start market first, are AI robotics, synthetic biology, and advanced materials. So that's a lot of the focuses and areas that we uh, invest in. Myself, like everyone else on the investment team, has kind of a dual background in terms of both business op operations, investment, as well as technical. So on my side, yeah, you mentioned core investment team at Bridgewater Associates back in the day. Uh, also uh, had done my own startup, uh, worked pretty deeply inside the Berkeley and uh, Stanford ecosystem in particular in terms of startups, advising, working with them as well. was pretty early in the drone and 3D printing movement and uh, yeah. got to know the companies in those areas pretty well like uh, years ago now, I think around 2013. So that's sort of that background sort of on the operator and investor side. And also uh, I have a technical background as well, just in terms of was a Google X as well as uh, I'm pretty have a degree in uh, uh, yeah, Georgia Tech science, right? statistical learning and stuff. Yep. Uh, the stuff that was less sexy before, but is more so now. I'm still a reviewer for uh, different technical publications that uh, relate to AI and whatnot. Man, yeah, so much to start with, start off with. But uh, uh, I guess like when you're, I guess early in your career, did you ever see yourself as a venture capitalist? I mean, if you... Um, think about it like uh that's not necessarily like i guess back in the day that's not necessarily like everybody's like goal to become one because there wasn't too much information or i guess knowledge yeah. Around, right yeah there wasn't and even at this point even though the firms have gotten a lot larger it still is kind of a roundabout path to get into it usually they don't promote internally so it's similar to i think well, I'm in private equity at one point and consulting at one point as well, though it's the consulting's changed over time and whatnot. But usually uh, people come in from after having an operator background or similar sort of thing. So it's kind of hard to just decide to get into VC because there isn't really a linear path. For myself, uh, I did not. 
Uh, it really wasn't on my radar for things to do. Uh, and like, like I was more expecting to be in startups or, you know, sort of at worst, like you know, be in a large tech company or whatever and had various offers in that direction over time. But uh, for me, how I ended up here was a friend of mine in business school wanted to do a fund. He went off and did it with another friend from business school. And then I had told them not to do it and suggested not to, because this stuff is actually kind of hard if you want to do it right. <laughs> if you just want to sort of play with money and throw it at startups, that's pretty easy. But to do it right <laughs> is a little bit hard. So uh, basically, they came back like sometime later and essentially said, yeah, you're right. In like three weeks or something like you're right. It's actually kind of hard to think about this in the right way. So can you help? And slowly sort of reeled me in and... Uh, basically went like hey you're spending so much time here you might as well be a partner or whatever oh and, man uh, that's cool <laughs> maybe that was, well maybe that was their design from the beginning to reel me in because if they said asked me originally i would have said no so <laughs> uh get get the foot in the door and get the person buried too deep and then sort of do it and whatnot but anyway uh, it's been quite a few years at this point uh, since that was around 2016 in terms of the formation. So we actually got to see a lot of the rise, uh, the early rise of AI and everything, which everyone's paying attention to now because of ChatGPT. But really, the step forward for ChatGPT was relatively small. It's more it got popularized. The real sort of turning points were probably around 2016 and like 2021, 2022. What uh what 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 happened in uh 2016? Was it like a new API came out, or like what do you think was the uh, I mean even right now like 2022 like yeah ChatGPT comes out but uh or OpenAI yeah but uh what, what was it back then? Because uh not too many people. Well, yeah, I mean the big thing was it was actually the <laughs> that that's probably uh, your. I personally don't subscribe to Doomers or whatever, but you know that's probably a Skynet moment in terms of uh, basically <laughs> computer vision started to hit human levels of capability. Uh, it was more around 2015 at that point, but it's sort of around that nexus period where computer vision started to hit human levels of capability. So uh, people at this point probably don't remember particularly well, but uh, before 2015-ish, uh, you know, computer vision, so AI, couldn't really tell the difference between, say, cats and not cats. Oh, right. <laughs> so it's that level of rudimentary. If we go back to 2012, it's essentially hopeless in terms of, like, trying to make real problems work in that area. But post that, all of a sudden, like, computer vision and recognizing objects became much easier. So uh, that's convolutional neural networks, whatever, if you really want to get into the technical details. But that's really a big turning point. Another big turning point was like uh, transformers and sort of the larger models and whatnot that parallelized things that turned into ChatGPT and these other LLMs. Uh, but that came before also ChatGPT itself. Interesting. Yeah, James, uh, I guess question for me is... Um... Maybe you can explain to our uh, listeners on, you know, what's the difference from a mindset perspective, being an investor and an operator, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people want to be an investor, right? Because right. they're a good operator. And then some people let's say in Wall Street, right? I mean, they say, oh, actually I can, I invest pretty well. So I'm actually going to be good in running a company. Like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because you've done both. Yeah, totally. I mean, in terms of the operator, there's a lot of specifics that you need to get pretty deep on. 
like when you're first starting a company, you got to figure out payroll, you got to figure out like all these different things, and you got to be willing to get your hands dirty and really dive into it. In terms of the investor mindset, it is, there are aspects where, yes, it is, even for startup investing, it is a little bit more abstracted. Uh, it's not nearly as abstracted as, say, a global macro hedge fund, where you can basically abstract away all the messy details of people and whatnot. Uh, VC investing is probably the area of investing that's closest to the ground. Uh, but at the same time, you're looking at a portfolio, you're thinking about how can this thing be, like, what what strategy do I have within my portfolio? Most VCs are hit-based uh, so essentially, how big does this need to be in order to make up for all the failures in my portfolio? There's diversification, whatnot. And there's also some sort of level of being able to get deal flow and recognize when the right thing is coming across your table. It is a decently different mindset. Again, you get to abstract away a lot of different things, but I'd still say that the best VCs tend to have both aspects within them, some level of being able to understand the investing mindset, but needing to also know where operators are coming from. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to empathize on certain parts of the startup journey. And there's enough idiosyncratic messiness of individual startups that if a VC doesn't get it, they're not really going to get it in terms of understanding like how to help guide a startup through it. But then again, uh, and sorry, in terms of throwing in a tangent here, then again, it also depends on how active the VC is, because I think I come from a mindset where Creative Ventures is extremely active. We tend to be one of the first investors in, we tend to help the company a ton, we tend to be on the board, we tend to sort of be the most active investor, even basically up to pre-IPO. If it's an investor that all they do is get into hot rounds and throw money in at the last possible second and squeeze into the round, that's a little easier in a way you just need to uh, just run around and talk to a lot of people, not to disparage their strategies. It's a, it's a skill in and of itself in terms of going to many parties, but it's still a thing. Man, yeah, that's so cool. Uh, James, I remember, I think I saw that uh, you're on your LinkedIn, you were a board member of, uh, was it C-Light Technologies? I um. I was at Berkeley Skydeck for like their uh, one of their portfolio companies, like as an intern at um back in the day. Well, four years. Oh ago. wow! Okay, yeah. And I saw that company like on the what do you call that? I might have saw them doing some of the stuff that they were doing, or maybe I just saw their logo on the uh, on the wall. But um, that's really interesting. So that company, that's they do something with, uh, is it? It has to do with your eye, right? Or yes. So it's a neurology startup at the end of the day. So one of the interesting things is uh, the PhD who founded its research, Christy, she uh, worked in a lot of different microsacods and whatnot. And some of the, and a lot of the research going back quite a few years at this point, basically point out that tiny eye movements, more or less the way I describe them is they're kind of screensavers for your eyes. So even if you someone tells you, stare at the wall, do not move your eyes, your eyes are actually going to move. Like they kind of yeah. have to for the same reason that screensavers move things around. Your rods and cones shouldn't like stare at something and burn out. So uh, those tiny movements are pretty primitive in terms of it's like controlled at very base levels of the brain. So neurodegeneration shows up in those patterns. Like you can actually start to tell it's this type of degeneration. It's this advanced. And uh, it's basically tell the difference between it's Parkinson's versus this other thing and also how advanced is it. 
the trouble has been it's actually kind of hard to measure those tiny tiny movements especially just in a clinic or something uh with a quick visit so they have a laser in essence that is able to track those tiny tiny movements and it's interesting that you mention it because it's part of the difference between some of these types of technologies uh, since we're talking about startup mindsets and whatnot and a lot of other kinds of companies say in just pure software space it's hard to kind of pivot when, you know, there's years and years of research, great yeah. money and other things that have gone into it. You kind of have to figure out like, okay, is this going to work? And then how am I going to make it work? And what's the right go to market and stuff. And for the most part, for these kinds of things, you kind of have one shot at it. You can't just constantly be pivoting the company. Like you might be able to with a app software, even marketplaces in certain cases. Uh, so it's kind of a different mindset that you need for one of these deep technology startups. Yeah, you, you got quite a few of them, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or like the portfolio, at least, is um, rather... Uh, that's, yeah, that's pretty much all of them. <laughs> all of them, okay. Uh, what yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess, Jay, yeah, question, yeah, question for me is, why did your fund decide to go towards this space? Um, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are used to some of the VCs and entrepreneurs and kind of in the tech space, either it's fintech or SaaS, B2B. Um, software, mobile, but right. you know, since 2016, you've really honed into this, and obviously now you know a lot more. Let's say about AI, which is a research project back in the day, and obviously hardware. Now semiconductors are getting hot again, right? So, right. how did you develop that, and also how did you convince the investors of fund to actually back this when there's a lot of, I would say, noise but movement in you know other parts of the vc world yeah totally and it's a good question in terms of that the part of it was just personal interest as well so uh, that always kind of stems in terms of some of these things so i left bridgewater in part because i was seeing a lot of interesting things happening in computing and ai and these areas in particular so again global macro is kind of very divorced away from the world you get to abstract away a lot of stuff uh, but part of it was I was already seeing different things happening within the space. There's a lot of opportunities. But the other one, too, is if you think about a startup, a startup needs differentiation. If you think about a VC fund, most of them just kind of go out there and throw money at random stuff. Uh, it, in reality, if you're actually doing it well, as an investor, you also need to have your own differentiation, right? Because it's this exact question. You are VC fund number by that point, it's like whatever, like 300, 500,000, 10,000, or something like that. Why should I give you money when there's everyone else? Uh, the, the only answer, typically speaking, that people have gotten is we're smaller and scrappier, or well, too bad you didn't get into Sequoia, so we're what's left. <laughs> so, uh, as far as like arguments and stuff. We wanted something a little stronger, and we also thought that deep tech actually requires a fairly different mindset in terms of investing. So like we were talking about with that company in terms of C-Lite, we invested, we were one of the first, it wasn't the kind of round where it's like you're desperately crowding to get in because the generalist investors don't have the background in order to really evaluate it and be comfortable with it. But at the same time, uh, if you actually are able to take this company and have them launch and get to scale, it's a very different proposition than say like a SaaS company where a lot of it is sales, trying to get uh, trying to get adoption and everything in these viral cycles. 
because neurology is important, because we know early detection is important, this will be valuable, like pretty much full stop, as long as it actually hits the clinical milestones and other things that it needs. That's the characteristic of a lot of these deep tech things. There's actually a lot of IP, because if you think about a normal startup in, say, SaaS or software or whatever, if they start to fail, they basically have next to nothing just in terms of assets, IP, like sale value. For these companies, even for ones that have failed, quote unquote, they can sell for tens of millions of dollars because the IP itself is quite valuable. Uh, so just in terms of the mindset they have to go towards it and the way that you think about it, it's very, very different than a typical startup. So kind of a long answer towards that. Uh, but that is the differentiation as well. Deep tech doesn't work the same way as uh, software, SaaS marketplaces. And if you want to invest in this area, we think that we're one of the best, if not the best in it. So that's sort of, that's basically the argument. Wow. Yeah. James, I guess like one question for me would be like, how is frontier tech and deep tech, they kind of meet the same Venn diagram, but like, is there a difference or would you say like deep tech is more just how would you describe deep tech actually when you think? Of yeah. It? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard. It's difficult because uh, the way that when we had started out, we didn't use the moniker deep tech. Uh, we thought it was kind of stupid because what is the definition even? <laughs> uh, and frontier tech has also been used to describe largely the same things. Uh, fortunately, you know, BCG came around and like put a stamp on stuff and <laughs> came out with a report that it, that they essentially defined deep tech as pretty similar areas that we invested in, uh, sort of coincidentally, which helped out, which is AI, synthetic biology, advanced materials. Uh, so as it turned out for their definition, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of different definitions out there at this point. It's probably the best well-defined one. So we kind of go with it since it fits us anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, how, uh, James, I guess like one thing I want to know is like when it comes to the market right now, would you say that deep tech is growing when it comes to, I guess, entrepreneurship in that space or what do you yeah. think about it? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, we'll, we'll see whether or not it's a hype cycle. I personally don't think so, but you can make an argument in terms of it. But software, marketplace, crypto, et cetera, have sort of fallen off quite a bit. And a lot of the interesting technologies are things like, I mean, AI is the big hype area right, right now. Uh, I do think that a lot of the AI companies right now are probably the wrong ones to invest in in terms of some of the ones that people are paying a lot of attention to we can get into that later but that being said these areas ai in terms of different bio like biotech biologics these different things different things with the new materials and whatnot in some cases actually designed by ai as well and sort of integrating that in these have become a lot of the companies that everyone's pretty excited about uh, but a lot of the current investors, again, aren't really that well positioned to invest in, uh, especially there's a path dependency too. They they also have, are weighed down by a lot of their legacy companies as well. Um, so yeah, it definitely has become a super hot space and has a lot of interest. Um, and you were mentioning at the very beginning of the podcast, the world is kind of messy right now. And that is actually quite messy in this area too. Because uh, even though a lot of the marquee investors that you think of in terms of Sequoia, Lightspeed, whatever, have a lot of trouble investing in this area, groups that are actually jumping in quite a bit are governments and strategics at this point, just because it's become so important for uh, the national security of every single country. 
<laughs> that's interesting um do you uh do you think like there's new developments i guess like within the past year or two that um people want to innovate more in or like do you think that it's people just chasing a market trend or like what would you say like the trends are with ai right now or deep tech particularly yeah, I mean, whenever something becomes popularized, obviously everyone sort of chases towards it. So from, you know, we saw that with crypto uh, and blockchain, it's like you can kind of check, you can check your normal assumptions about how startups, how economics or whatever work at the door and it'll just work because it's crypto or blockchain. And then a lot of those blew up for obvious reasons in terms of it, looking back. In terms of a lot of the AI companies right now, that a lot of similar things are happening where you get a lot of sort of first derivative like businesses where it's like, I can string together ChatGPT, Anthropics thing, and a few other things and make something that seems kind of magical from a front end perspective. But at the same time, you're reliant on everyone else's APIs and also you don't have any defensibility yourself. Uh, it doesn't take that much to actually sort of think that through and sort of take it to its logical conclusion. But a lot of people are checking that at the door and a lot of companies that either do that or again, do other first derivative sort of ideas of, oh, suddenly AI can do this, I'm going to do this are out there right now. A lot of the more interesting companies have actually been percolating for a while, which is taking AI and having it apply more and more to the real world. Uh, the more interesting thing about human intelligence and really the thing about AI, like changing things, is not within the digital world as much because we can actually do a lot of the stuff that AI can do with normal statistical algorithms. The real interesting thing is bringing AI more physically into, say, drug discovery, into materials design, into circuit board design and other stuff like that. And that didn't happen with just ChatGPT and the current boom recently. And there's actually been quite a few companies that have been pursuing that for a while now. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Uh, well, no, I think it's fascinating to like, unpack like what goes on because um, like, there's so much to, I guess, like it seems like your fund is super concentrated on, on the deep tech or like the AI investments. But um when you think about that too, that's even a really big space that uh is hard to pull apart. But um, uh, but yeah, that's total. That's why we start, and that's why when I might describe things in the beginning, even though we're normally known as like, hey, you do AI robotics and synthetic biology and these material science stuff, we start from the market. And that's actually a big lesson, I think, for different folks who are looking at stuff in this space. AI can do a lot of stuff if we're just taking that one technology, for example, right? It's a super general technology. It can do a lot of stuff. But what's the right market to actually go after ultimately? And also what's the right market to go after first, just in terms of go to market? There's a lot of different areas. There's a lot of different ways you can slice it. And the applications of what you're trying to go after in a way in the market is much more important than the technology itself. It should be the case that the technology just enables this thing to happen. But if you were able to just magically have like a person in a box do it, uh, it, they should still be super happy to pay for it and stuff. So the real question at that point is, yeah, what does it enable and what markets to go after? And if you start from that direction, you have a better shot of succeeding than if you start the other direction in terms of this technology is really cool. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, yeah. I guess James, I'm I'm curious. Uh, in startup mindsets, we also talk about kind of you know maybe stories or experiences you had when you were a bit younger. Let's say mm -hmm. grade school, high school, college. That fundamentally, looking back, made you think. Oh, actually, yeah, that actually helped me prepare to become either a better investor, entrepreneur, an operator. Um, tell us more about like, you know, um, your childhood, how you grew up and, you know, how does some of these things maybe relate to what you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, growing up or whatnot, I think I had more of a typical, you know, uh, second generation immigrant kind of thing in terms of like growing up in rougher communities and whatnot and sort of needing to figure things out and be a little self-reliant so i think that helped to some degree i think one of the things that probably actually in a way ironically which you wouldn't expect helped even more uh well, obviously bridgewater helped in terms of thinking about different things from the macro perspective but before that i was actually working uh in nonprofits. Uh, a lot of it was actually west african microfinance and housing and other stuff in terms of it. Uh, but a lot of that was actually trying to figure out specifically how do you help a group or markets or whatever adopt different technologies or different processes in such a way that it crosses cultural barriers and respects that and also helps them really understand what's going on. So that's a little bit abstract, so I'll get more specific. Uh, one particular case that I encountered was a microfinance institution that was doing a lot with paper, not super surprising, like loan documents, like loan records, individual, like they basically brought in these little yellow sheets all the time, essentially, to sign off on, hey, this is your loan. This is like how much you have left. This is what you paid in. They give the sheet back. They put it in another paper sheet and sort of stick it into huge filing cabinets and whatnot. It works okay. I mean, it works in essence, but one of the big problems with that is it's hard to audit. It's hard to actually get any stats out of it. So like from the nonprofit's perspective, they have no idea how things are going. And the, but the staff really were only familiar with that. They weren't really that familiar with like computers or whatever either. So one of the things that I did during one particular time period when I was there uh, was I helped build them out a system that looked like the paper system. Because one thing that you have to realize is, you know, for some of these folks, some of the conventions that you and I have in terms of like drop down menus or whatever, it isn't necessarily intuitive if you've never used a computer before. <laughs> Uh, even in terms of moving around a mouse or whatever, you're going to be kind of awkward and the keyboard, you're inevitably going to be slow. So one of the things that I did there was took away all of that. And it's basically just the paper sheet. We're able to pull out the data, parse it, deal with that. But inevitably, it's just like the computer screen shows the same yellow, which I made it yellow for that reason, paper sheet that everyone else has uh, in paper in terms of it. And that helped actually get some adoption there. So again, it's not thinking about what is the what's magical about the technology or whatever. This was built in Microsoft Access or whatever because it's what they had. It's really thinking about what is the need, what's the application, and how do you actually get it adopted in such a way that it's accepted by the market or community that you're trying to go after. And deep tech is a little bit different in terms of the way that it's structured and everything, like I said, but that fundamentally is still something you need to think about. You can't just come around and tell, say, one example, radiologists, my AI is better than you, so you should just retire and I'll 
in uh, the hospital, she'd use my AI uh, in general or something. Uh, you kind of have to think about the market structure and really be sensitive to it and really understand, like, how do I get this adopted? Uh, hey, James, when you were um, doing that for the, you call that the West African area or um, the bank? Micro, uh, well, uh, microfinance in this case was most of the folks. So there were some housing and other sort of nonprofits broadly would, in different areas. But yeah. Would you say that it was hard to get them to adopt the new technology or like, you know, like what would you say? Because yeah. culturally that might be not as the same as the U.S., right? Like when it comes to adopting yeah. tech how did you go about doing that yeah it's uh like it like i said in that particular case a lot of it was just making the analogs almost identical to the ones that they were using already so that at least there's familiarity in walking through to from the paper little yellow sheets to the one that's on the computer and it just cuts out a step for them and that they don't have to double book it in terms of like writing down on their own records as well like what they did that uh the big part of that again was like thinking about how do i make it so that they don't need to click on that many things they don't need to type that many things they still need to but they don't have to type that many things and they don't have all of these different drop down menus or other things that might make it hard to really understand or figure out like how to actually use it and i make the in this case it was kind of an interface thing but it was the interface thing to introducing them from a filing cabinet to a database. <laughs> the database is the whatever deep technology or whatever you can call there. Uh, yeah. The interface itself is just the computer screen and having it look like the paper. Would they, would they just, uh, did they ask you for the new, uh, like the new product or was it just something that you wanted to do out of like knowing? Yeah. The I mean, I was, yeah, at the time I was more someone who, had very vague mandates and part of the reason why i eventually left was i got more involved in like uh board of directors doing reports on like stuff and things like that it became much more politics and less directly interesting the a lot of the times my mandate was pretty broad it was just sort of drop in and see what's going wrong and wrong is very vaguely described <laughs> oftentimes <laughs> uh so, I mean, in certain cases, the thing that's gone wrong is we haven't gotten any contact from the office for like, I don't know, like a few months, <laughs> say, in terms of local office in Africa, back to the U.S. headquarters. Uh, we need someone to sort of check out what's going on or whatever. And usually most of those cases, it's pretty simple. It's uh, the SIM cards, which is what's used for Internet access and calling and other stuff ran out of data. So they don't have the ability. Uh, they ran out of data. They didn't get a new infusion of cash in order to go refill it. So they weren't able to contact for a while. So uh, it was pretty broad usually in terms of what I was doing. And yes, that was something that I did pretty much on my own. Uh, mainly, I just needed to get the staff adoption because at that point, again, it's like it's big filing cabinets of paper. Uh, it's not like it's not like those designed processes or something that the u.s mandated and also the u.s had no visibility either into what's going on um yeah that's that's quite fascinating uh i just always think that like um when it comes to like adopting new products it seems like there's a lot of red tape or it could be like government interference well maybe at a bank yeah there could be government interference i don't know but uh was it like you had to do a lot of user testing or did they just say 
anything that what was that were they kind of just um willing to were they searching for that or like do you think that uh you know like uh you had to do a lot of selling to them or persuading in this case yeah in this case not as much because it was a smaller organization for this particular case and also again the existing solution was bad enough that oh yeah one was obvious better <laughs> so um but but yeah definitely in a lot of these different cases it was more like for example the one that i talked about with radiologists right so one of the big the reasons why i bring up radiologists is the first generation of ai trying to go after healthcare was pretty much an endless stream of startups trying to use ai to replace radiologists so like for x-rays different scans and stuff uh because it's pretty straightforward it's a sheet of, it's a sheet it's an image that computer vision has said post like 2015 2016 was able to parse and get some sort of understanding of we can recognize and process way more of these scans than any radiologist can um and in a way for certain of these, especially for like more like basic cases or whatever, that's definitely true. It's gotten more and more sophisticated over time. But the problem is you run straight into, but the radiologists are going to protest. So even assuming that you're perfect, right? Like truly perfect, which they weren't, which is itself an issue. The radiologists will like, again, like basically push back significantly uh, i think over whatever was the time period like 2018 2019 2020 there were a bunch of different publications that radiologists put in their different journals about how dangerous ai is and how it should be essentially banned from looking at radiology scans uh so that's one example of essentially running headlong into a market disrupting a player in it that actually has a lot of both political power like social power, et cetera, and more or less running into a buzzsaw because of it. Now, there were other reasons why it had issues in terms of it, which I can get into, but even if there were truly no issues and it truly was perfect, it was still going to run into that buzzsaw. Um, well, one, one thing, well, I guess switching gears, J James, um, I was thinking, or I read that you uh, worked at, was it Mac Google X's Makani project or something yeah. akin to that um and i was thinking about like when it comes to entrepreneurship and google x is sort of like the they call it the moonshot cap no factory right i've yeah. actually been to the office there in uh, mountain view before um and something i had an interesting thought was uh i was reading this book it was by laura wong she's a professor she used to be a professor at uh what do you call that hbs and mm -hmm. she was saying that um entrepreneurs who or, or rather maybe like innovation or not or yeah like just um startups like compared to startups like if you think about it versus like a uh a, a big tech incubator like google or even other companies that do that they might not be relying on desperation as often as you, you know google has all the money in the world so there's not mm -hmm. necessarily the desperation to to create something versus the entrepreneur who comes from scratch and is uh working day and night and running out of cash to invent something or grow the company um i think there's like a huge operational style there do you do you agree with that or do you think like there's since there aren't the constraints you don't work as hard right like how do you perceive that yeah i mean i'll avoid commenting too much yeah on <laughs> 
though, though, in terms of that, there's other books and other accounts that you can talk about. However, I will say, yeah, generally speaking, say, if you look at a company that's reliant on government grant funding, let's just take that as an analogy, right? Those companies oftentimes will take years and not really get anywhere. Why? Not because the people are less smart or are or, or not as smart, not because, you know, they didn't have the capabilities and obviously not because they didn't have the cash. Uh, a lot of these cases, because, yeah, you take away a lot of the urgency. If you take away the urgency, it's less important to really figure out, say, who's my right market and how do I actually make this into a startup or a business that's able to make money now? Uh, if you don't do that, if you're just like, well, I could refine more of this technology, I could do more of these things, I could do more customer discovery, I could network with more people and get to know the industry even better, you can forever kind of put off the hard, the most important priorities pretty much forever, because there's a bunch of things that you can argue are important, but it's only when you actually get down to the wire that, yeah, like, okay, these are all important in theory, but we, this is truly the thing that we have to get done. And that usually in our experience as well, again, with grant funded companies only really happens when you actually do have a timer. So I agree with that. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Like the desperation to need to sell too. like, I guess, like, I mean, X would, I guess in the context of Google X, like it seemed very scientific and then they don't have that desire to sell immediately. Although you could say with like Waymo that they're close to that. So I guess it's a, depending on the project, but how would you describe your time there? I mean, or how would you like, you know, that project Makani was like kites, right? So hard to, hard to. Uh, energy. Airborne wind turbines, basic idea just to, for listeners and whatnot is that essentially uh, the bigger the windmill, the more power it generates. There's like a physics reason in terms of it, but it's, if you, even if you look at the big windmills, the energy is mainly generated by the edges, like the outer edges of the windmill. So the bigger you can make it, the better. Unfortunately, in terms of the real world, for most things, for normal windmills, uh, the bigger you try to make it, the bigger the base needs to be to hold the entire thing up and the more material has to get sunk into the those giant blades right because it, it essentially volume surface area etc you get an issue where it becomes exponentially more expensive to make the windmill bigger and bigger so how do you get around that well, what you could do is you could get rid of the rest of the windmill. And in this case, they essentially did that by making uh, airborne wind turbines or energy kites in this case that fly similar to the way kites do crosswind, so against the wind, and go into giant, giant circles in such a way that you could never make a windmill that big. And that drives wind through the blades, which is, generates most of the power that you would with a windmill that's that big which you'd never ever have anyway so that's the idea there are complications like for example when wind goes away normal kites gently drift to the ground in this case wind goes away if you don't have a way to bring into the ground enormous airborne wind turbine crashes into the ground that would be an issue yeah, uh, so <laughs> they actually had to so it's cool technology. They actually had to have the thing reverse the power and turn into kind of a mini helicopter and land itself. So lots of very cool stuff in terms of it. My particular time there uh, mainly was working on a particular pilot launch announcement in Hawaii. There was a lot of different stuff going on with that. 
and lots of interesting internal politics and other things. But anyway, it, <laughs> I, I personally enjoyed the time in terms of it. It was kind of short for it, which I think was maybe part of that too, in terms of not needing to deal as much with as many internal politics and other stuff. But great people working there. Uh, I think that I really did enjoy that particular time, probably more so than I would have in sort of Google mothership. Uh, oh, yeah. it, it, did, it did have a little bit more of a scrappy atmosphere for that. Um, but yeah, as I said, and I think this has now like a decent amount of documentation in the press and stuff, there's two problems that you run into for that. Like even aside from any sort of internal knowledge or whatever, you can just think about it abstractly. For Google, for something to actually make a difference to its bottom line, it has to be pretty massive. So right. this is kind of like a VC that requires, no, I don't want a 10x return. I need a thousand X return. Oh, wow. Like you sort of you, like, I mean, Andreessen actually is kind of like that, right? So you start to run out of businesses that can really generate that. And in terms of this, it's like you start to run out of businesses that can actually become billions and billions of dollars, not a billion dollar business, a 10, 20, 30, 50, something that will actually make a difference in Google's massive top line in terms of being noticeable. Okay, so that's already a challenge in terms of like making it so you really have to shoot for the moon. So moonshot factory. But the second thing as well is, yeah, you do also have that challenge. Again, like even putting aside any internals or whatever, you can just think about it. It's going to be hard to have urgency around a lot of the different projects. If you know that in essence, this is sort of a rounding error anyway, in terms of budgets or whatnot for Google. Eventually it became less so. And again, there's some documentation in terms of the new CFO for Google, forget which year she came in or whatever, uh, started axing a bunch of things. Um, oh, right. I heard about that. Yeah. No more. Yeah. They still do free food, but I guess maybe they cut printing quota. They, cut, well, they, they started <laughs> imposing requirements on projects in terms of when they were supposed to actually start bringing in stuff and other. So there's imposed a lot more discipline. And in a way, I, I and so I, I can comfortably say this because I don't know. Maybe Wayman also got a little bit more like sort of energy behind it to go like spin off and do other things because of that too, because it added some urgency. But that's the thing. It's like uh, inevitably, again, I, uh, this isn't really a knock on X or anything. Just inevitably, if you have resources that seem infinite, you're just going to have less urgency to really make the thing happen in a short time frame. And that that's that could be said about life too, right? Like maybe personal fine like I guess the entrepreneur, like if they have been to be rich or right, like they don't need yeah. to be successful as mad as somebody who's not as rich or I, struggling. I mean, let's be realistic. Like obviously if you have a bunch of money that you can throw at your own startup, that's gonna help. But that being said, yeah, there I have seen that in certain cases where someone is happy to kind of be a dilettante because oh, I heard that word, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's fun enough to be the CEO of your own company or whatever, and you're funding it yourself, you don't answer to anyone else. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of fun to do it. You have employees maybe that essentially you're supporting, but you don't really have to make it into anything and there's no pressure externally to do so. So in many of these cases, they don't. So yeah, I, I've definitely seen that. In certain one, cases. Last, one last question here before we get to the end of the show but james i know mm -hmm. that you're a board member and uh at several companies what do you think like has been your observation from i guess a board perspective that is so innately valuable to a portfolio company or is like think from the outside looking in or um 
people see board members as like uh what do you call that like uh individuals who steer the ship in a way that but they don't necessarily steer the ship like how would you describe your role in well board yeah so inevitably board members are unless you get really active in terms of it and something's gone wrong board members are not day-to-day -day, so they're not management at least in a case where it's correctly structured and other things they're not management however yeah in terms of strategic direction and everything the a board is valuable many boards of vc companies are not valuable because there's nothing magic about sticking a stamp that it's a board <laughs> that changes stuff however if it's correctly structured really the way it should go is in an early stage startup the board is still quite active you know you help guide the direction you help the ceo bounce ideas in terms of like here's what the next round of financing should look like and given the fact that a lot of board members tend to be vcs who have invested in the company it also helps because you're also talking to the people who probably would be tossing in at least some money, if not leading the next round anyway. So it's a helpful checkpoint for that. For CEO, CEO founders especially, it avoids a little bit of the uh, not accountable to anyone problem. So in certain cases, again, we're talking about sort of resource stuff. And you can, again, even apply this to resource curses for countries that have a lot of, say, like natural resources that end up not developing in other ways. For CEOs who actually are CEO founders who are able to raise a ton of money but have no oversight, sometimes those, actually, those companies actually spiral in their own ways. So a board can help just any startup. Uh, have someone to at least be accountable to, to if not like breathing down your neck or whatever, it's still just at a monthly or quarterly basis, you have to kind of show what happened so that adds some level of urgency oh, right, or yeah. some level of focus, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like, oh no, I, I actually have to do this versus like procrastinate until the end of the year or something. Um, so yeah, that's a general thing. In terms of more specifics for our companies, I did mention like deep tech companies are a little bit different. If you hit the wrong market to start with and everything, you kind of might not have enough time to pivot or not enough money to actually survive. So a big part of what boards should do is they should be ones who essentially sit there and are able to help guide a lot of the different market understanding and whatnot. Uh, a lot of VCs I've heard uh, tell me <laughs> They sit that they sit in pitch meetings all day and just learn and it's super cool or whatever. Yeah, in my yeah. opinion, it's kind of a dereliction of duty. I'm not sure what you're bringing to the table at that point, other than just dumb money being thrown across the table, if that's all you do. A startup founder has a lot of other things to deal with. A lot of the minutia, whatever, like team management, personality management, recruiting, dealing with this, like you know, the, the gusto or rippling or whatever, like all this stupid stuff that you have to deal with day to day, but you have to do it. That means that you won't necessarily be, say, the foremost expert in the market that you're going after, especially not versus a VC who has seen this before, who might actually know a lot of your customers or potential like acquirers or whatever it is. Uh, that VC should know more than you in that area because you're busy with a lot of other stuff and this is all they do. So anyway, personal opinion in terms of VCs who kind of just say that they sit around and learn or whatever. I, as a founder, would not suggest, I mean, whatever, you fill your round with who you fill your round with, but in terms of like ones that you have bigger checks or more active involvement in, I personally would not suggest those types of VCs because uh, they tend to not show up 
when you need them and then show up when you need them least. Let's, like, for example, yeah. when the company is burning down and suddenly they're calling you. It's like, wait, what's going on? Um, yeah. Well, you want to that's just that's good game. So maybe we, we wrap up some of the podcast with three questions, um, but I'll start with the first two. Um, the first one is like, if you had to summarize your own personal startup mindset in one to two sentences, like how would you articulate that? Uh, in terms of if, in terms of running startups and operating, I think the big two things is truly think about your market and get the hiring right. Like mm. ultimately those are the two things that truly matter. A lot of people would just sort of leave it at people and hiring, but there's a lot of, how should I say it? Avoidable mistakes yeah, <laughs> that a lot of people make. And thinking. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's not just make a product, right? Like, cause the, the saying, which is a little oversimplified is the first time founders think about product, second time founders think about distribution. Uh, ultimately your thing is meant to be sold and get out there. And if you build it, no one ever comes <laughs> like, uh, you have to figure out a way to get it out there and you have to figure out the market dynamics. So it's still something very worth sitting down, thinking about it and getting advice on. No, oh, it's perfect. And then my, my next question, which is my last, and I'll turn it over to Dan, is if you could put the time machine back and talk to yourself when you're 18 or 19 and give yourself advice, um, what would that advice be to your 18 or 19-year-old self? So the way that I put this, and I promise I'll still make it useful in terms of this, I don't think I'd say anything. But the reason is this, and I could say this, but it wouldn't help in terms of it. You kind of do have to go through things and learn things through experience on your own. Because someone telling you something doesn't necessarily magically make it any helpful in any particular way. Uh, I wouldn't change my particular like trajectory, path, journey, even though it was kind of winding and weird, because that gave me a lot of different experiences and cross-disciplinary things. Because the world is interdisciplinary, as one of my... Uh, high-performance computing professors once told me in terms of as an MBA showing up in his PhD seminar. The world is interdisciplinary. There's a lot of different things that a lot of different like perspectives bring. And being able to and willing to seek out those perspectives constantly is really what helps make really interesting, really uh, high-performance, whatever you want to call it, startup founders. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that is one thing that I've seen over time it tends to be the case that people who have put the energy into improving themselves over time and getting a lot of different experiences are the ones who do better, even if it doesn't show up on a resume. Perfect. Great. Thank you. I mean, I yeah, think... Yeah, James, that is a good probably point. Probably the first person that said that I won't say anything, but the context actually is even richer. So thanks for that. Dan, Dan go ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, James, I think that's a good point. You said like, it, even if it doesn't show up on a resume, right? Like there's so many things that are lives you can't even put on a resume that give you the personal courage or, you know, like founders always, I mean, they always have to overcome very difficult things, whether that's internally, like putting the product out there, or even the technical stuff too, that's difficult as well. But, uh, yeah, like when you think about that, um, yeah, that's that's a really good point. I just wanted to double boost that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, James, I guess so. Like, how how can I for for the last part of the show? How can I, um, 
if if somebody's a what do you call that a potential startup that is in deep tech or that criteria that you guys do how could they potentially talk to you or like pitch the the fund or how also do you uh guys uh i guess promote yourself right totally yeah i'm technically on twitter x whatever that thing is called i used to be <laughs> <stuff there, laughs> though i don't really as much uh but in any case like we do have a email which people do go through do note many many emails come through so sometimes it takes a while but invest at creativeventures.vc is a monitored box is the way that we sort of bring in a lot of these different things i think we might try a different method in the future too but well for now the email is the simple quick way and stuff uh myself in terms of it i mean I, we write blog posts on creativeventures.vc. We actually talk quite a bit about what specifically we look for because we're actually very specific in terms of what we do. Uh, so we write a lot of stuff there. And in terms of like my general complaints in terms of AI and also just discussions about sometimes like what are good things to think out as a startup mindset and other things, for example, not hiding your idea because if you do the moment you get contact with the market what do you think will happen people learn about your idea so if that's all that's required to defeat you i suggest you find a different idea anyway uh but yeah i write about some of that stuff as well on uh, weightythoughts.com so that's cool, a sub stack cool. that i now do well james yeah it's a pleasure meeting you man i um it's refreshing to talk to a vc uh about not just investing but just how they see you know entrepreneurship it's, it's really cool Good stuff and really enjoyed the conversation.